As you find Ephesians 6, I want to remind you of something we said last week in Ephesians 5 as we were looking at the ideal of marriage. I said this, this is a quote from last week, it's fun, I get to quote myself. Basically, we'll see marriage was created by God so that we might serve him by having children, by maintaining faithfulness and intimacy, by upholding properly ordered relationships, and by husbands and wives both conforming to Christ. Now, you may or may not have noticed, sort of slipped in there, the biblical ideal for marriage includes having children and upholding properly ordered relationships. That is not to say that all Christians must get married. Singleness is a gift that the Apostle Paul had and encouraged others to embrace. There is a place for singleness in Christianity. It's also not to say that all Christian marriages must produce children in order to be successful. Although, I would argue that there should be a willingness to have children and to raise and, and disciple and to honor God. But we've noticed a few times how, as Paul writes to the church at Ephesus, it sort of is mirrored by his letter to the church at Colossae. In Colossians, he just tends to be quite a bit more succinct. It's like, you know, Paul must have had more papyrus and ink when he wrote Ephesians because it's a little bit longer You know, in our Ephesians study, we saw through the end of chapter 5 that Paul addressed wives and then husbands and explained the picture of the marriage relationship, giving the ideals of marriage as designed by God. And now, as we get to chapter 6, he immediately moves into children and parenting. Here's how he writes it to the Colossians, and it's very brief, but listen. Colossians 3, 18 through 21. Wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter toward them. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Right? There's these properly ordered relationships of husbands and wives, and those lead naturally and directly to God-honoring relationships between children and parents. The way this is arranged in both Colossians and Ephesians tells us a couple of things. First, obviously God's design is that there would be marriage before there are children. In fact, God's design is that there would be marriage before any of the activities come that would produce children. And also, if the husband-wife relationship is not following the God-honoring pattern, it will be exceedingly difficult to maintain the God-honoring pattern in the parent and child relationship. All that to say, the ideal design for children revealed by God himself is that children would be subject to and benefit from the guidance of a mother and a father who are joined together in a God-honoring marriage. In the last two or three decades, our society has made a habit of glorifying single parenthood and putting it on a pedestal. And while 
we can recognize that in many cases there are mothers and sometimes fathers who have been abandoned through no fault of their own and given all the responsibility of parenthood without the resource of the other spouse. It's not always something of their own making. We should also not uphold that as if it is ideal. One parent assuming the role of both mother and father is never the ideal. That's why Ephesians and Colossians both address God-honoring marriages and it immediately flows into God-honoring relationships between parents and children. So this example of God-honoring submission and authority in marriage extends beyond just husbands and wives as we talked about last week and it continues on into children and parents honoring God in their roles within the family. So let's read Ephesians 6, 1 through 4. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you, and you may live long on the earth. And you fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Disordered parent and child relationships have become so commonplace that we don't spare a second thought when we see children who are being willfully disobedient or when we see parents who are utterly failing in their job of discipling their children. And and just a note for today... I'm going to use that word discipling and the word discipline interchangeably. They are related words. Even though we tend to think of disciple as teaching and discipline as punishing, if your discipline isn't focused on discipling, you're not doing it right. Disobedient children and disobedient parents share responsibility. In fact, While we think about the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, we tend to think of many of their failures before we finally put our finger on the one that should be most obvious, the failure of the family. Of all the Old Testament laws regarding righteousness and obedience for the nation of Israel, there were two very simple laws which had they obeyed, it would have saved them innumerable heartaches. The first law is this. From the Ten Commandments, this will sound familiar, the Fifth Commandment, Exodus 20, verse 12, Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. Right? If Israel wanted to stay in the promised land where God was placing them, this simple command of honoring your father and your mother was to be at the forefront of their obedience to God. But listen to this, because the second command that relates to this, I'm about to read, and it carries the exact same promise, but instead of being focused at children to obey, it's directed to parents to disciple. Listen to Deuteronomy chapter 11, verses 18 through 21. Therefore, You shall lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul and bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be frontlets between your eyes. 
you shall teach them to your children. Speaking of them, when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up, you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates, that your days and the days of your children may be multiplied in the land which the Lord swore to give your fathers, like the days of heaven above the earth. Right? The responsibility of children was to obey their mother and father. The responsibility of parents was to mold that obedience into, into and around obedience and knowledge of God's word. Teaching the children when they're sitting in the house and when they're walking down the road and when they're going to bed at night and as soon as they wake up in the morning, just continually admonishing children to obey their parents as their parents are obeying the Lord. And the promise was, in both of those cases, if they did this, God would keep them in the promised land. Did Israel stay in the promised land forever? No, as you know, they were carried away into captivity by Assyria and then by Babylon because at some point, either children stopped obeying their parents or parents stopped discipling their children in God's word or both. Knowing what we know about the sinful nature of mankind, that total depravity begins from our very conception, it should hardly be a surprise. Right? When we talk about depravity, that sin, sin is just, it's, it's bound up in our heart. It's not just the things we do, it's, it's what we are that makes us do the things that we do. It is bound in the heart of every man, woman, and child walking this earth. Listen, children are not born as clean slates waiting for their parents to mold them for good or bad. Children are born sinful, depraved, genuinely awful. In, in 1926, uh, the governor of Minnesota, a fellow named Theodore Christensen, established the Minnesota Crime Commission to study crime and, and evaluate its causes. Christensen was certain that poverty was too influential and that education was failing, and these are the reasons that crime is what it is. Well, unexpectedly, the Minnesota Crime Commission reported back and said the governor was wrong. Criminal tendencies were not a result of poverty or education or environment. Instead, it offered this brutally honest assessment of human nature. I love this quote. Here it goes, quote, Every baby starts life as a little savage. He is completely selfish and self-centered. He wants what he wants when he wants it. His bottle, his mother's attention, his playmates, toys, his uncle's watch, or whatever. Deny him these, and he seethes with rage and aggressiveness, which could be murderous were he not so helpless. He's dirty, he has no morals, no knowledge, no developed skills. This means that all children, not just certain children, but all children are born delinquents. If permitted to continue in their self-centered world of infancy, given free reign to their impulsive actions to satisfy each want, every child would grow up a criminal, a thief, a killer, a rapist. 
No truth to the rumor that the Minnesota Crime Commission started selling onesies and baby products with that quote on it. Listen, all humanity is fallen into sin. All humanity suffers the consequences of sin. And, and how that relates to the family is you end up with, with men who abuse their authority and abuse their wives. You have women who frequently rebel against the idea of submission in marriage. You have children who reject any call to be obedient to their parents. And then parents perpetuate over the next generation the same kind of mental and emotional and even sexual abuse that they themselves suffered. As we are caught in this downward spiral of horrific consequences, what hope do we have? Is there anything or anyone who might intervene? What power exists to make a difference in a world of sin? Is there anything other than the gospel that Jesus came into humanity, lived the perfect God-honoring life, shed his blood to set us free from the power and penalty of sin? Is that the only solution? Y'all, I want an answer. Is the gospel of Jesus Christ the only hope that we have to intervene in our sinful hearts of, of us and of our children? Okay, so where do children first experience the gospel? Now, I'll give you a hint. It happens before they're old enough to open up the word and read it. It happens well outside of the Sunday school class they might get dragged to on Sunday mornings. Can I take your mind back to Ephesians chapter 5 for just a moment? Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as unto the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church and gave himself for it. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ loved the church. Wives, are following this perfect example of Jesus in submission. Husbands are, are following this perfect example of self-sacrificial love for their wives. This is a great mystery, Paul said back in Ephesians 5, that God designed marriage to be a picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in this way, by God-honoring relationships that they see between their mother and their father, Children are to be raised in the light of the gospel. They get a picture of the work of Jesus and their mother and their father in their marriage. They, they, they see it in, in their mother's relationship to Jesus and in what they see in their father's relationship to Jesus and how their father and mother's relationship with Jesus makes a difference in their relationship to one another. They get that picture, they see it, and they internalize that long before they could ever articulate that that relationship between their parents works the way that it does. They get that picture, or I should say, it shouldn't be just a picture. What the Lord told to Jewish parents in the Old Testament is true for us as well. It's not just a picture. It's also words, right? Talk about the Bible, about righteousness, about the Lord Jesus. Talk about him when you're sitting at home or when you're walking down the road or when you're going to bed at night or when you get up in the morning. Jesus should be a common topic of conversation in your home. 
Children learn about the gospel of Jesus Christ in their home first, or at least that's how it should be. Children are also learning other lessons that you never intended for them to learn. They're learning how important church is to their parents. They see whether or not you speak honestly and work diligently and give generously and whether you forgive freely. They learn by your example, either right or wrong, whether serving in your career gets priority above or below serving God. Their idea of marriage is going to be shaped primarily by their experience as children from your marriage. And they will only understand that authority is good if they see their fathers use authority for good. And they will only see that submission is good if they see their mothers do submit and and willingly rank under in that family and experience the blessing of being loved in return. Now, of course, no parent, no wife, no husband is going to do this perfectly. And so in our failings, those children will need to see us appeal for mercy and grace from God. And they will need to see that we find mercy and grace from the perfect Son of God who never failed the way we do. Okay, all that's basically introduction, right? Much like last week, which was sort of a a biblical overview of the marriage relationship. This is sort of a biblical overview of the family relationship. But I want to dig into the text for just a a few minutes and see some specifics of what it says. So verse 1 again. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. And you fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Your 21st century American ears are not going to hear the bombshell in verse 1 the way 1st century audience would have heard it. Specifically, Paul says children, not just sons. Daughters in the first century were not highly valued, or at least not as highly valued as sons in ancient society. Sons sons existed to sort of carry on the family name, to fulfill the family's obligations, to expand the family's honor. A daughter's value was only gauged by their ability to marry them off to some other important family. Although maybe I should add here, even sons were not as highly regarded as you might think. One writer, a man named Daniel Aiken, points out that it was common in the Greco-Roman world for children, often infants, to be put on the trash heap outside the city where others might pick them up and raise them to be prostitutes, slaves, gladiators. Unwanted children were aborted or abandoned. Weak or handicapped children were killed. So by saying children, Paul not only elevated daughters to the level of sons, but he also elevates children in general to a higher regard among Christians than it was in the main of society. Listen, this would not have been the stance of Christianity if not for the teaching of the Lord Jesus. Right? He, he blessed children, he taught children, he even when his 
disciples showed the common disregard for children that the rest of society had. Jesus was infuriated and said, allow the little children to come to me for if such is the kingdom of heaven. Don't, don't forbid them. The very fact that this passage exists, speaking directly to children, is evidence that God values them. Christ values them. Christians ought to value them. Children are made in the image of God, and though they are sinners for sure, we're given the task to disciple them and shape them into worshipers of the Lord Jesus. Children, Paul says, are to obey their parents. That is a really simple command. Extremely difficult for our natures to obey. Now, any of y'all in here who are children, Paul's straightforward command is much less harsh than other scripture given to children who came before you. So, for example, you'll find it less harsh than Proverbs 30, verse 17, which says the consequences for mocking your father or despising your mother was that ravens or eagles would come and pluck out your eyes and eat them. Not only does the Old Testament law prescribe the death penalty for cursing your parents, but the New Testament also lists disobedient to parents with some other shocking sins. And in Romans 1, as Paul makes one of his, one of his catalogs, one of his lists uh, of sins, it, he includes disobedience to parents on a list with sexual immorality, pride, murder, and hating God. So children, take heart. Paul is kind here. There's no threat, there's no terror, there's no shocking condemnation. This is written with the assumption that these children in the church at Ephesus hearing this would want to do what is right, and he simply says, obey your parents in the Lord. What's it mean to obey your parents in the Lord? It's been suggested that Paul means to obey your parents as long as they are leading in righteousness. Hopefully your parents are leading in righteousness. But I don't think that's what Paul means here. He's actually saying that the act of obeying parents is an act of obedience to the Lord. He goes on to say, you'll note, he says, for this is right. Or in other words, this is an act of righteousness. Obeying your parents is an act of righteousness. Or as he says to the Colossians, we read earlier, children obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing unto the Lord. So this isn't a, a command to obey your parents if you like what they say, or, or even to obey your parents if you think they're righteous, but in all things to obey. Your example is Jesus, because Jesus was obedient to the Father's will in all things. The voice of God boomed down from heaven more than just once to say, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. For you, obeying your parents is an act of obedience to the Lord. To reinforce this command, Paul goes on to quote one of the Ten Commandments in verse 2. He quotes the fifth commandment we talked about earlier. Honor your father and mother. Honor and obey 
are compatible commands, but they are not identical. Obeying is a matter of what you do. Honor is a question of your attitude while you do it. This word honor means to value highly, to esteem, to hold in high regard. All right, young people. Your parents are almost certainly not as big of idiots as you think they are. For sure, they got their problems, right? One of those problems is you. You have problems too. But honor your parents by holding them in high regard. After all, they taught you most of what you know. And for most of you anyway, you are the combined genetics of those two people. So maybe be a little bit more optimistic about them if for nothing else than for your own sake. Adult children. There is no timetable on this. We're not called to honor our parents until we're 18 and leave the house. It continues on. So that we're even to honor our parents as they grow into old age and need assistance. In Matthew 15, Jesus condemned those Pharisees who refused to help their own parents financially. Paul echoes this in in 1 Timothy 5, chapter 4. Paul writes essentially, this is a paraphrase, you know, if a widow has children or grandchildren, those adult children should put their faith into practice by helping her, paying her back for what she has done, for this is pleasing to the Lord. You're never off the hook for this command to honor your parents. But for young children or adult children, there is a blessing for honoring and obeying your parents. Paul says in verses 2 and 3, Honor your father and your mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. So he notes, this is kind of neat, he notes that the fifth commandment, back in the Old Testament, honor your father and your mother, is the first commandment that came with a promise of blessing for obedience. But instead of quoting the fifth commandment, he, he, he sort of paraphrases the blessing. I mean, remember we talked about the fifth commandment earlier. Here's what it says again, Exodus 20, verse 12. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. That's not exactly the same as what Paul says here, right? The promise to abide in the promised land for a long time is not identical to what Paul says about living for a long time. But when the Ten Commandments get repeated in the book of Deuteronomy, there's a little bit of extrapolation in Deuteronomy. So here's what it says when it gets repeated. Deuteronomy 5, verse 16. Honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God has commanded you that your days may be long and that it may be well with you in the land which the Lord your God is giving you. Right? So there's still that blessing of abiding in the promised land, but there's also those statements, your your days may be long, it may be well with you. It's very evident here in Ephesians, Paul's actually quoting the Deuteronomy passage, but he's also drawing a principle from the law of Moses that applies to New Testament Christians. This is not 
an absolute promise that if you obey your parents perfectly, you're going to live to be a hundred. We just have too much experience in this world of sin to know that's not the case. But it is a statement that is generally true. So, for example, when your parents say, don't play in the street, obeying your parents might tend to have you have a longer life than disobeying your parents would, right? You're more prone to a long, blessed life if you listen to them. However, God is also perfectly capable of cutting short any life that displeases him, and disobeying parents is disobedience to God himself. Okay, we we need to get to verse 4. Before we do that, let me point out one other thing from the first few verses. Just like Paul saying children included daughters and sons in a way that would have been shocking for first century readers, just like that, Paul also says parents and not just dad, right? Children, obey your parents. In verse 2, honor your father and your mother. That's the way it is said in the uh, original commands. He includes fathers and mothers. So this system of submission and authority that God designed in marriage that we talked about last week, using that military term submission, which means to to rank under, wives rank under husbands, not that they are of less value to God or they're, they're, they're not as smart or they're not as spiritual. None of those things, just to prevent chaos, right? Wives rank under the husband in the family, but they also rank over the children, Paul says. So just like a colonel in the army ranks under the general, but he ranks over plenty of other people, right? She ranks over the children and commands authority. This has always been the way God has designed it. I'm going to read to you from Proverbs 6, verses 20 through 22. My son... Keep your father's commands and do not forsake the law of your mother. Bind them continually on your heart. Tie them around your neck. When you roam, they'll lead you. When you sleep, they'll keep you. When you awake, they'll speak to you. Right? So honor your father and your mother. Obey your father's command and your mother's law. And yet when we come to verse 4, there is a specific responsibility that Paul lays on the father. Verse 4, you fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. There is a negative there and a positive there. Negatively, you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath. Not to suggest that mothers are all immune to this. But fathers, in particular, are prone to being harsh in a way that provokes a child to to anger or, or, or other difficult emotions. I actually like the way the NIV says this here. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Fathers can be impossible to please. They can be quickly angered and frustrated and show very little grace. And so instead of provoking them to wrath in Ephesians, and Paul writes to the Colossians, he says, don't provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Again, I like Daniel Aiken's analysis on this. Fathers can exasperate or discourage 
their children by failing to take into account the fact that they are children or comparing them to others or disciplining them inconsistently, failing to express approval, even for small accomplishments, failing to express love, disciplining them for simple mistakes instead of willful disobedience and defiance pressuring them to pursue our goals instead of their own or withdrawing love or even overprotecting. There's so many ways we can do this. Listen, just like the work of a father back in Ephesians 5 is a high calling, right? Love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. The calling of fatherhood should also instill some healthy fear. Every child of God who calls God their father knows that our Heavenly Father is gracious and merciful and long-suffering. And like it or not, when your children hear about their Heavenly Father, they're going to think of Him first in terms of you. And your relationship to them should reflect your relationship to God, your own Father. Right? How How does God deal with you when you've done wrong? He doesn't provoke you to wrath. He doesn't exasperate you. He doesn't discourage you. He lovingly forgives. He shows grace. And you know whether or not you're reflecting your heavenly father's character onto your children. You know this. You just need to ask yourself when they do something wrong. I mean, when they really mess up and they know it, is their instinct to run to you or to run away from you? The negative admonition here is do not provoke your children to wrath. The positive is bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. The word nurture carries the idea of training and discipline. Admonition is the idea of instruction or or commands. Fathers, our job is to teach our children to train, to disciple our children. Don't forget, while while teaching them about, you know, well, here's how you deal with bullies and here's how you ride a bike and here's how you swing a bat or or drive a car or buy a car, change oil, right? All those things that we think about, well, this is our job to teach our children. You need to teach them, disciple them in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus. I mean, we, we talked about husbands and wives last week, but all the time, as we talked about husbands and wives, who was that really about in Ephesians 5? Yeah, Paul, Paul says, look, this is a mystery, but there's this picture of Jesus and what Jesus has done. And now we're talking about children and mothers and fathers, but who is this about? Right, it starts and ends with him. Verse one, children, obey your parents. In the Lord, it ends with him in verse Four, right? Raise them in the training and instruction of the Lord. He, <laughs> the Lord Jesus surrounds this text. He's the, he's the bookends that's holding it together. Listen, the Lord Jesus is what's holding your family together. So that neither parenthood nor childhood can succeed without him. A father's job is to teach his children about Jesus. It's to encourage them to follow Jesus. It's to point them to the person and work of Jesus. It's to to tell them about sin and how it resides in their heart, how it displays itself in their actions, to exhibit grace to them when that sin shows its ugly head, and to point them to the source of salvation, which is Jesus Christ alone. 
Listen, when you teach them about the Bible, it's fair to point out, here's some instructions and here's some commands. But if all we do is point them to the instructions and commands in Scripture, right, regarding their behavior as it's convenient to us, right, you've got to stop that. Look at this. Now I'm happy. If all you do is point them to those instructions and commands, you are giving them the standard that lets them know that they're sinful, but you're not giving them the one real solution for that sin that's residing in their heart and your heart, Jesus. And so talk about him when you're sitting in your home. Talk about him when you're driving down the road. Talk about him before you go to bed at night. Talk about him first thing when you get up in the morning. So in this text, children are to honor and obey their parents. It is the right thing to do. And children, God sees it and he's pleased with it, even when it's hard to do that. Parents, especially fathers, continually point those children to the Lord Jesus because that's the only way that you know that you're giving your children directions that are actually worth them obeying you. Listen, when you have children, you're not just preparing them for their adult life. You are preparing them for eternal life. And there is not a thing that they need from you more than they need Jesus. 